0: I'm Chase,
1: and I'm Timothy, and this is customer service.
0: Good morning, Chase. How we doing, Big Bronda? Oh, just fine. It's Friday. Yeah. Yes, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> it was a long week. Yeah, this week kind of whooped our ass. Yeah, so it's t- it's time to put it in the grave and move on. Yeah. But not before we speak with W. David Marks of Amatora fame. Um, w- this is a long time coming. I feel like people have wanted him on the podcast and, yep. and requested him. We've obviously been referencing and and uh, and telling people they should read this book since w- we opened. Mm-hmm. We've always carried it at the shop whenever we could keep it in stock. Yeah, it's kind of like the introduction to this whole world if you don't yes, know it's it. Kinda like, yeah. It's kind of like the Bible to what we do. So yeah. it's, it's really it really puts in perspective... Um, just kind of the, you know, the culture of Japanese fashion and American fashion and how they correlate. Yeah. And a lot of people are really interested in that when they come in of like, you know, why or how? And this sort of answers all those questions really eloquently. Yeah. so we've wanted to have him on for a long time. It was a great conversation. I think we both learned a lot. He's just a very insightful, very yeah. intelligent Incredibly person. Incredibly eloquent, yeah. Yeah, so it was re- it was a r- real pleasure to talk to him and 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 kind of get to know him more, um, you know, as a as a him person, you know, as mm-hmm. and then it was also nice to uh, you know, just talk some about some of this uh, you know, the cultural differences of Japan and America and the similarities at the same time. So, it was a it was a really great conversation. So, I don't know. You got anything else to say? You ready to get right into it?
1: Yeah, we should hop right into it. I want to say I have one thought on the W, and then if you want to cut this out, you can. But uh, do you remember when Gia was born? One of the first things I taught her to do is hold up the, the, the three-pronged W with the fingers and say, W. <laughs> yeah, she still does it. Yeah. <laughs> no and then. It's, it's, deep, it's deep in, her, you, in, her, in card, her mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So well, anyway, we'll hop right in with uh Without further Harris. ado. <laughs>
0: Let me ask you a quick question because I heard I heard about I heard I heard on another podcast you say that you saw the Promise Ring somewhere. Is that like is uh-huh. that the kind of like music Multiple you're times. into? Uh,
2: I was into. I, I, I I've been thinking about this a little bit because mm-hmm. I was very into college rock before it was alternative because I had an older brother and sister. Uh. So you know I was into REM and Ten Thousand Maniacs, mm-hmm. Smithereens, all that, and then. Nirvana hits. I get really into alternative, and then around '95, you get this kind of peak of alternative where it's a bunch of one-hit wonder acts, mm-hmm. and there's still some pretty good songs from that era, but like nothing really sticks. Like uh, Wax, California. I don't know if you know that song. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Yep. Uh, Letters to Clio, like stuff like that. Yeah. So I was into that, but then around '96, '97, I really started getting bored with all of that. And looking for something else And I I was on this trip with a friend in Germany And he was like, oh, listen to this And he had the promise ring And he let me hear a couple songs I was like, that's cool And then when I was uh, in college I went to Tower Records And I tried to find whatever record that was I didn't even know what the songs were called so I ended up getting 30 Degrees Everywhere which was the record he was having me listen to and I was pretty into that for uh, a couple of years but I was also listening to like Atari Teenage Riot and a bunch of Japanese stuff so I wasn't like a full second wave emo head or something but um, was into Promise Ring was into Get Up Kids and then kind of you know pretty quickly fell out of liking both of them but yeah
0: we can't escape saying this almost every single podcast but we were like really into like hardcore and all that stuff and like that was like Mm -hmm. right like adjacent to like american football and red house (laughs) painters and like all that kind of like that wave of like not punk but somehow adjacent to Mm -hmm. and so so we grew up with all that so when i said when i heard you said i was like oh damn yeah yeah he'll he'll know (laughs) we had nothing feels good playing the other day yeah
2: yeah Yeah, it's a great record um, yeah, but it's interesting, they all kind of went, they all had, like, the the really weirdo, uh, you know, buried vocal, repetitive lyric kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and then they cleaned up a little bit, and then they all had, like, a next record that was acoustic, or used Scott yeah. Litt from R.E.M. to do the production, and it's like, what are you guys doing? I think, yeah. I don't know, I, I think about this all the time, because there's, there's this period in which you really love a band, and then they try to get a little bigger, and they go in a different direction, and you fall out of love with them. And as a kid, you're just like, you know, why did you do that? Like, I'm so angry at you. And then you realize, as an adult, you're like, oh, they just wanted to like pay their like health insurance bills or something like (laughs) they just wanted they wanted to like see how far they could take it nobody really wants to be stuck in the middle all the time and so i get it but like those those records didn't work uh i think for probably most people i mean liz fair had the same problem where she tried to do a big record and got kind of dinged on it uh, and if had it worked, it would have worked. If it was a great pop record, people would have been into it. But, uh, you know, there has been very few acts like that that have transitioned to from like that indie, like genius kind of indie debut to being like a really big band. I think you sort of
0: lose what happens is like because money gets involved and interest happens that you lose like the earnest aspect of it because it's like I'm really into like shoegaze and all that. And th- I'd say that is the type of music where the sophomore record is often horrible because you get a bunch of like guys that are into gear but don't have the money to have access to all of it and then the first record comes out and you're like how did they you know because they were recording stuff weird because they didn't have access to the the stuff they needed and then you put them in a studio and they'd fucking fall apart because (laughs) because it's like you have access to all this stuff and there's money involved in these all these tour dates and they just like can't yeah, it's like it just doesn't it doesn't evolve at all in terms of this kind of like, you know, kind of boring normally, if anything, it, it record that just isn't it doesn't it loses that whole spirit. Produced of, well, but yeah, it doesn't have that sounds, like, better kind of. Yeah. yeah. But, sometimes like like the juvenile aspect, too. Yeah. Yeah. There's something especially about that kind of music.
2: There's actually this whole neuroscience theory of art that when things are ambiguous or a little bit Uh, sketched instead of fully fleshed out that, you know, we project onto it the perfection and it's like that interplay between the artist and the audience in its imperfection that makes it better. And I think there's some of that going on, right? And when it's too polished, you, it is what it is. And if it's not good, it's not good. You can't really project good, you know, greatness onto it. Um, I also think Kevin Smith and a lot of indie filmmakers have the same problem too, where it's like you saw Clerks and you were kind of thinking, oh, if he had money, how amazing he would be. And the answer is he would not be so great if he had money because it was the lack of money that made the whole thing interesting. I think Richard Linklater is probably a, a counterpoint to that, which is he got the money and did cool stuff with it. But um, I don't know. It's The, the 90s was interesting because you had to test out all this where – people did really DIY scrappy things that were beloved. And then if they can make the transition into having all the money and production value in the world, uh, and make that still, uh, cool. Yeah. It was, uh, not everybody made it out alive. We, we we talk about it a lot here at the shop,
0: actually, of like kind of like boxing yourself in on purpose, like kind of like denying yourself one or two of the things that we we, we could have access to, but it would be better if we solved the problem without them. Mm-hmm. And that oftentimes ends up being like better solutions, even if they're like short term solutions, because I think, like you're saying, sometimes if you have everything i mean there's 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 a difference i actually think that like dinosaur junior is a little bit of one where it's like there's a very clear vision from record 1 to whatever they put out last year or whatever you know what i mean like the, they kind of still sound the same he's kind of making the same types of music he's obviously he he there, there's a there's just a line of thinking that you can you can draw between all of the records mm-hmm, and it just mm-hmm. seems and it seems relevant still because i think that was what he was trying to accomplish then is what he's a try, trying to accomplish now i don't think a lot of people are ready for that when you get first, especially musician. But I would argue, actually, this, this kind of happens in fashion a lot too. Something starts going well, it gets funding. The vision wasn't a hundred percent clear just yet, and now you have to like kind of like struggle through this like, what am I? And then, but now you've got the eyes of everyone, and that's hard to do. And I think it's very rare. Maybe like I, mean, I guess maybe if we're going like the '90s, like Nirvana might have been a good example of like watching someone sort of evolve and do it and kind of like live up to it regularly. But like it's hard to evolve in front of a lot of people with all the right thing. I mean, you just have to have the I don't know. Yeah, I still I still think you have to have like a a really linear idea to start with. And like I'm gonna I'm gonna do this kind of regardless of like you're saying like Linklater. I think if you could give him any amount of money, it's still gonna look like Linklater. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, the yeah, movie yeah. he made re- most recently still looks like some of his first. You know movies. So I don't know. I think that you're right. It is. That is a tough, it's a tough thing. Um, David, when did, when did you move? Cause you're in Japan now. Yeah.
2: I'm in Tokyo, which is also why my sentences sound so uh, stilted. Cause it's pretty early here, but yeah, yeah I, good I'm morning. in Tokyo <laughs> yeah. uh, and I've been here for 20 years now. What, what prompted the move when you were younger? Um, uh, so I'm from Pensacola, Florida. Florida. <laughs> well, I mean, I was never, I, yeah, I was sick of Florida like day one, but, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, uh, cause I, I was born in Oklahoma because my dad was at the university there. So I was in Norman. And then we moved to Oxford, Mississippi, where my dad was at the university of Mississippi. And then we moved to Pensacola, Florida, where my dad was at the university of West Florida. So I moved around a bunch Uh, Oxford was really strange like it's a really I I mean it's changed a lot it's gotten a lot bigger and I don't know what it's like now but it was this very kind of Creepy, idyllic small town that was obsessed with its southern gothicness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was very interesting. It was very culturally interesting, uh, although strange. And then Pensacola, Florida, it's it's a weird thing that's somewhat between being a southern, a deep southern place and a Floridian place. And so it it it's like you know America's oldest city actually. Um, and there's a lot of history and a lot of interesting archaeology. But, uh, I mean, there's just no culture the kind of way I was interested in culture. And it was Mm -hmm. very far from any big cities. It's like six hours from Atlanta. So, uh, you know, bands didn't come through or it was hard to get stuff. And I... Uh, one of the things, Pensacola had a sister city connection to a small town in the Japanese Mountains, and so when I was 17 in high school, I got to go to Japan for three weeks on that program, and uh, I just really loved it. It was, I mean, I was even in like a very very small town, and just felt like. I think Japan is the future was a kind it's kind of cliche, but there was something going on in Japan that nobody knew about in the U S and that it, the technology was much more advanced and the consumer culture was very advanced and not relying on American culture. Like it had its own in entirely different ecosystem of actors and musicians and magazines and everything. And so I ended up wanting to study Japanese in college. And so uh, I did Japanese for four years and spent a couple summers in Japan on internships. And uh, when I graduated from college and was in New York, I worked for this magazine, Tokyo, which was a, a kind of street culture magazine. Mm. in the Lower East Side, but it was bilingual and I, I, uh, between Japanese and English. And I was still writing a lot of the Japan-related content, even though I was moving away from that. And uh, I just... Uh, realized that I studied Japanese but I was never going to get fluent unless I moved there so I got a scholarship to get a masters uh, uh and so when I was 24 I think uh, I moved to Japan to get uh, a masters degree that was about 3 years and then uh have just never left and and after after I graduated from that program I kind of thought well my career prospects would be better in Japan and the things I'm interested in are here mm-hmm. um and now uh Japan Japan used to be really nice but really expensive or really nice and you have to give up your access to a lot of media and products that you may like from the United States, but now we live in this like crazy, internet-connected, globalized world, and so like there's literally nothing that I can't get my hands on in Japan, and, and almost nothing I can't watch or consume, and so all the disadvantages of being here are kind of gone, and then it, Japan is really uh, inexpensive at the moment because of the yen, and it's yeah. just, you know, it's been a deflating economy, and America's been an inflating economy, so uh, a lot of the disadvantages that would have made me probably maybe think about moving back dissipated and it just makes a lot more sense to be here so was it a pretty
0: big culture shock when you went there when you were 24 because obviously that couldn't the internet couldn't it's not as it wasn't as evolved as it is now like you know we're saying like that that makes it feel not so far away was it was it more of a culture shock then
2: yeah I don't know I've never really thought about the culture Shock aspect of it because the thing I was interested in was the shock in yeah. like, oh, yeah. in okay. the I was studying why are these cultures so different and trying to figure that out. So, any shock was kind of fascinating to me, but um, also like again, going back to Pensacola, Florida, I mean, as like a liberal kid in an incredibly red state part of Florida, it's not like I felt like these are my people, um, you know, we like my high school. Uh, I went. I, I was really lucky. I got to go to an international baccalaureate high school, so um, yeah. it was like a really great education in a public school. But uh, so it's like you know we had a crew of kids doing cool stuff. But you know it's not like we fit in with the broader community. And so you know being in Pensacola doesn't feel any different than being in Tokyo in terms of cultural differences.
0: Does Tokyo feel like home now? Uh, yeah, definitely do you think that i guess this is a a question i I had for you is like do you think that japan and the u.s are really far apart culturally or do you think that they're quite similar just in different ways because i I feel like i i I have friends that live there and actually uh my sister-in-law and and brother-in-law they're moving they're moving there uh this week or next or really soon and it seems like it can it can kind of go either way. I guess as someone who's lived there for as long as you have, I just I just wondered if you felt like it was more similar or more different.
2: Um, I mean, there are definitely huge differences in the the way I would usually describe it. Is that Japan is very process oriented and very detail oriented because of caring about the process so it's like if you're Mm. trying to do anything the way you do it really matters and there's like a proper correct way to do it that you have to do and if you don't do it that way it is incorrect and people get very upset and the United States is very goal-oriented and so it like it doesn't really matter how you do it as long as it gets done and so just from that small difference uh, or uh, or um, uh, kind of philosophical difference about how the world should operate. There are a lot of big differences. And so uh, you know Japan, I think is nicer in terms of just infrastructure and stores and and commerce and all of these kind of daily parts of our life because people really care about the presentation of the way things are. Um, but at the same time, if you want big changes to happen, like uh moving the entire society onto the internet you know uh, the united states yeah. did that a lot more quickly because uh japan sometimes can can um take a long time to move towards the right goal or when it comes to uh liberal values or you know uh, gender equality in the workplace i think the united states has moved a lot faster on that than japan because japan's just very slow at these things but moving in the same direction so i mean what i would definitely say is that 15 years ago or so there were all these advantages of living in japan but the disadvantages uh were were part of that too because you would be in a social group for example with a bunch of uh if you're in a kind of japanese social group then you have all these rights, but the duties definitely outweigh those rights in the sense of, like, you mm. have to be there on time. And if you're the newest member, you have to stay until the very end, even if you want to go home and there's nothing to do. And and all those rules you found felt bound by. Hmm. And now I think the society has really loosened up a lot, and it's a little more chaotic, and it's much more globalized. Uh, the whole kind of system of you must study to go to the best high school in order to go to the best college in order to get in the best companies in order to have a successful life I think that system is really cracked and so there's just a lot more going on that's a lot looser and so the some of those kind of social obligations have disappeared and so uh, this is very abstract the way I'm talking about it but more or less like I just I think that there used to be a cost you paid for the nice part of Japanese society of the order which is that you had to also really um put this order on yourself and be bound by all these kind of social conventions and now i think that's lessened up a bit um and so uh i don't know i mean i, I think it's becoming closer to the united states but without having the parts of the united states that are really uh problematic
0: do you yeah, think sure. that do you think that's like overall a positive
2: Overall, it is a positive. I'm trying to just think about what what the negative parts of living in Japan are at the moment. And um, I think you could say that... Again, you know, maybe they're not progressing towards full liberal values as quickly mm-hmm. as as people want you know, even people in Japan want them to, but it, they're the problems are very minor. I mean, especially thinking about the United States at the moment with all the infrastructure problems and sure. political squabbling and just a general malaise. Um, I don't think you get that in Japan. I mean, one of the weirdest things in the world was last year, uh, the former prime minister Abe was assassinated and not only did like people within 24 hours be like, yeah, whatever, like it just really wasn't seen as this big kind of social event, uh, the other thing was the assassin had this agenda to put links between Abe and the Unification Church under a microscope and to get society to look into it and what happened was that everybody looked into these links and then started to expel politicians who had those links and so it was very strange also that the country somewhat took the side of the assassin oh, which wow. I would not have protected, pr- uh, predicted at all so anyway it's, yeah. it's, just a, it's a strange time but it's not a um, um, there really just isn't this dark chaos brewing under everything the way I think people perceive the United States or Western Europe at the moment to be like.
0: Could you, could you ever see, like, could you, do you think you could ever like after being there for a while and you, you know, you assimilate to a certain degree, like, could you ever see yourself like. Could you, and let's, not, let's not say would you, like, could you ever move back? Or do you think that this is just, it's so, this culture is so like ingrained in you that it feels most natural to you day to day?
2: I don't know. I mean, I'd love to challenge myself. Um, I, I lived in San Francisco for about six months uh, in 2015, and San Francisco is beautiful. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a beautiful landscape, but uh, boy. That made me it really made me appreciate Tokyo. And yeah. and I actually when I came back from San Francisco is when I started doing deep exploration into Tokyo. And one of the things that's weird about Tokyo is it's like, you know, it's it's unbelievably massive in terms of the scale of it and yeah. it's, it's not like manhattan or like another big city where you kind of get your mind around it very quickly there's just these certain places you go and then there's like 90 percent of the map you never ever go to and you just don't even know what's there and you ask people who've lived in tokyo their entire life like what is in tabata and they'll be like i have no idea because yeah. nobody goes there <laughs> and uh, I started to kind of uh, map it out and say, okay, like today I'm going to walk 10 kilometers around the city and I'm going to hit these spots that I've never been to. And there's so much and it's so, uh, it's just fascinating. And I've, I've discovered all this history and, and, all these interesting things going on, and uh, you you have to make an effort to do it. But it's even in doing that, it's like infinite. Like I I started getting to a point where it's like, well, I must know everything now. But there's just still so many places I've <laughs> yeah. never been to, and so you know that that feeling is also keeping me really motivated. Which is not just that I'm here and comfortable and don't want to leave, but also the sense that in in the city I live in, there's still like there's still uh, so much. quite a bit of undiscovered things to to do or in Japan, you know, being, being stuck in Japan during COVID was not so bad in the sense that you could go to Okinawa, which is like a beach area and you could go to Hokkaido, which is like going to British Columbia. So, you know, uh, there's just a huge wide range of climates and cultures, even within Japan. And then domestic travel within Japan is quite nice. And there's lots of great cities with great history. So, um, It's just, it's, you never get bored. I mean, I guess that to me, that's really important.
0: Well, you obviously have like a very inquisitive spirit, which I think is like, I think in like any major city, I think if you're that type of person, you know, like I said, we're from Indiana and Ohio. And I think a lot of like me leaving there was just not, was just being too curious to have that be my full scope. Mm-hmm. So yeah, when you move same. to somewhere like Japan, that's also so culturally different. And then, you know, it's so, like you said, it's so dense. There's so much to are you're, you're, you know, you could spend a lifetime and not fully take it all in. It has to be kind of enticing to live there. And, and we didn't talk about this at the beginning there, but like, i just i wanted to like amateur is really like that's really that's a that's a book that really has resonated with us and our customers it's been something we've recommended since like we opened um it, we sell out of it every time we have it like we try to you know we try to keep getting it but it's like it we it's really like something where i feel like the type of thing that we do is always is going to basically in like uh Kind of incite that inquisitive spirit, like you're t- like you're kind of talking from. It's like you learn a little bit about what what we're doing, like as a store, and people want to know more and more and deeper and deeper um, because mm-hmm. it, it has it's a it's a deep hole. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And this was always like honestly having Amitord to be like, hey, you know what? Before we go any further, you should really check out this book. I think it's going to give you a really nice baseline for yeah. understanding and having touchstones and everything. And I've always wondered, like, obviously you're a you're a guy who questions things beyond um what most people do do you know like or do you remember like what was like the first thing that made you want to start exploring um you know the the topics that you research in amateur do you know like what were some of those first like questions that you couldn't you needed yeah, to answer? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, it all starts in the summer of '98 when I was in Tokyo and interning for uh, a bunch of magazines from this publisher, and the publisher had a, a relationship with my university, and so they sent me just to like sit in these editorial rooms and and do nothing. And so I was reading through an issue of Hot Dog Press, which was you know I don't know you know Popeye magazine probably, course, but it was yeah. like mm-hmm. the rival to Popeye. And so Hot Dog had this kind of like cool T-shirts for for the summer, and uh, they had a T-shirt with a, uh, face from planet of the apes. And I had, uh, been into the musician Cornelius, who was very into planet of the mm-hmm. apes. And I was like, well, I gotta get this. Where, is, where is this place? And they, they, um, said, okay, here's, here's where it is go. And so I left and I went there and I got there at, like 5 PM and this was nowhere which sold a bathing ape and it was in the basement. And there was like literally like a bouncer, you know, standing in front of the, uh, the store and i was like hey can i come in because you're you know open till six they're like you can't come in and I it's like what do you mean i can't come in so uh <laughs> you know that was the first thing it's like what, what do you mean like stores the the basic idea of a store is i go there and i pay you money for for products <laughs> like you should probably help me with uh-huh. this so the next day i went at 1 p.m trying to get there earlier and there was like a hundred person queue and then as i kind of went in to the store there's like another you know hundred people in there and it took two hours with you know inside the store to buy the t-shirt because they had this arcane system where the shirts would come out and uh sorry the shirts were on a rack like one of each shirt was on the rack and then Mm -hmm. in someone would take the shirt off the rack and wait in line to buy it and until that person purchased the shirt no one else could purchase the shirt um it made no sense but it it just like really slowed down commerce and i you know It was just so confusing to me that, like, why are they trying so hard to make it difficult to buy clothing? Mm -hmm. And uh, then I went up the street and I saw Bathing Ape shirts from a year prior that were selling kind of in a black market for $300 or something. And so today, again, like the idea of reselling and... Limited edition goods and undersupplying, all this is now common vocabulary within the retail industry. But at the time it was totally mysterious and weird just because, again, you grow up believing that the goal of businesses is to sell as much product mm-hmm. as quickly as possible. Which sure. is a little friction for, for consumers. So it's kind of interesting: like, why are these brands creating friction? Like the staff are mean, it's hard to buy the clothes, you have to wait in line, like all these things are are trying to push away customers. And so I ended up writing my senior thesis about why that worked with Japanese consumers at the time, and it was you know all about a Bathing Ape and Nigo. And and so that's kind of where all this started. And and I had interviewed somebody for that who walked me through a little bit of the history of Japanese apparel. And I, I was vaguely aware of it. And I picked up a book when I got here that was a, a pretty good history of like all the different trends uh, leading to the 90s. And so I was vaguely aware of it. And, I, and when the IB stuff started coming in in the United States, uh, again, in like 2007, 2008, I had written an article about the Miyuki tribe, uh, these kind of Ivy League kids uh, that I opened the book with who get arrested for you know dressing like Ivy League kids, which is just a funny story that I couldn't quite believe. But I, I wrote that up and it did really well and it made me realize, oh, people are interested in this Japanese history. Uh, fashion history. Mm -hmm. And uh, then when Take Ivy kind of, uh, there was this cult around the Japanese version of Take Ivy and then Powerhouse Books did the reprints in English or they they made the first English translation in 2010. I uh, ended up, I was at this, um, there's this place that's a shoe shine bar uh, is the best way to, I mean, that's the way they describe it. But basically Mm -hmm. you go in and they they shine your shoes in front of you. Mm -hmm. And I think it used to be like, $15. And now it's like $50. They're very high in demand. But anyway, so I went in to get these like boots or shoes shined and the guy, a guy came in and he had a copy of take Ivy. And like, he was talking to the, the shoe shiners, um, and he was like, "Look at this! I've got the signatures of all four authors, and it's a mi- it's a misprint copy. Like this is incredible." And I turned to him. I was like, "Oh, I actually just wrote a little thing about Take I coming in English." And he's like, "Oh, well, next week I'm going to introduce you to the uh, son of the founder of Band Jacket because I used to <laughs> work at Band Jacket." And I was like, "Okay, great." And so you know, I went to go meet the Ishizu family. Uh, so Kensuke, Ishizu is the guy who really you know started. Um, Uh, Japanese menswear and so I met them and then I realized okay there's this great backstory to why in the world Take Ivy was made and I pitched Powerhouse on let me do a companion volume to Take Ivy that's about the like why it happened Mm -hmm. and they're great but can you expand it out to make it more of a book about like the whole history of Japanese menswear and I knew the streetwear part, but I didn't know the jeans part, and I didn't know the start, stuff in the middle. I didn't know how to quite how to connect it. But then I started thinking and 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 looked into it and realized, okay, now actually I do know how to connect it. It all connects. So that's that's where it all came from. And I wrote it pretty fast in kind of a vacuum of having no idea that anyone would ever read it or or think about it. I just became super obsessed with trying to tell the story about these individual people who were making decisions and making you know trying to kind of grasp uh, what was going on and make copies of this stuff in America or you know yesterday I interviewed um, Yasehiko Kobayashi the illustrator but the guy who's kind of behind a lot of the heavy duty style and all that uh, I talked to him again and you know it's it's just fascinating hearing them talk because they're you they're just recalling you know i was in america and i saw this thing and i had no idea what it was and it took me two years to figure it out you know whole earth catalog i picked it up could not understand it it took me two years until i went to alaska and then i saw these kids like these ski bombs and i was like oh this is what that is and uh that's that's what the story is about it's like you know people trying to interpret the alien uh culture of the united states and then ending up being so obsessed with it that they kind of recreate it and you know i mean i didn't i don't know if i even realized it till this podcast but i think the reason i was able to tell that story is because that spirit inhabited me as well about their story just that i get obsessed with knowing every single detail of this history and trying to tell it in the most accurate and uh specific way and one of the things i did to, to do the book was you know i would read an interview of someone talking about like how they discovered genes and then i would try to find where they had talked about the same thing in different Uh, Publications, So I'd read two or three different accounts of the same story. And then from there, really be able to bring in all the rich detail because they would tell the story slightly different in different Mm -hmm. ways. And then I would start being able to predict, like, I think that they did this because of this reason. And then I would find an interview where they would say, like, it's exactly that reason. And so, you know, I again, it's just like that obsession with trying to fill in every detail to tell the story in a really cohesive way uh, that I think reflects actually the story the way that those people were thinking about American culture as well so
0: you know I know this isn't good etiquette but I want to ask you two questions off of that sort of at the same time <laughs> like why do you think it is that like because like I'm this this has happened with almost every single thing I've gotten into and and I like you like really if I get into something I, maybe I'm not I'm, I might only be into like two or three things total but I'm deeply into those things and like you know almost all of them all kind of I don't want to say end but like like if you're looking for like the craziest stuff it ends up you're en- you end up in Japan like it's like the same with with a bunch of the music a bunch of like record collecting it always was like the ja- the japan presses or the stuff that's really hard to get was there like when i actually sold a bunch of my old hardcore records um to make money so i could uh buy my wife a wedding ring when i was a kid um they all went to Japan they were all sold for the most money was it was the, and it was rare weird like kind of like specific midwestern yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. um and it all went to, and the same thing is like I'm into guitars and pedals and all this. And basically, you go down the line, you end up in Japan. Like if you want to know what who's doing it, kind of like to the the nth degree, it's always Japan. I, I, I'm just wondering, like, why does that? Why do you think that? Like, I know that's a broad question, but why do you think that that happens? And then the, the second, like I said, was that why do you think we're then also obsessed with like stuff that like they just reinterpreted. You know what I mean? Like what, like why am I still trying to get like a fender Mustang that was made in Japan, even though it's just a duplicate in a slightly, in a slightly like worse paint color than the one in the U S that, that they issued that is probably easier to get and technically worth more like that one's just a more unusual. And it's like, so wh- wh- do, you, do you have any like feeling and like, and I know, like I said, I know it's a relatively broad question, but do you have any like gut reaction to that?
2: Yeah. And remind me to get to the second part. If I, yeah, forget, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, um, <laughs> On the first part, you know, it's 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 so easy just to kind of essentialize and be like, everyone in Japan is sure. really into deep knowledge. And it's obviously not everybody, um, but people who get very into things get really into things. And yeah. so um, if you're going to open a cafe and you're into roasting your own beans it's just very likely you're going to become an expert on having the best beans and the best roasting techniques and you're going to experiment over time and and spend 20 years to perfect the 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 way you do it and you know there's a philosophical uh anchor to that in this kind of confucianist mindset of there's a perfect way to do something and you're trying to discover it. And that there's a, um, I talk about this a little bit at the end of Amatora, but there's an idea of the kata, which is like a form. Um, I'm actually, I'm, I'm starting, uh, Kudo, which is Japanese archery at the moment, uh, just to, you know, do something new. And, uh, oh, I knew you were, were going to have some interesting hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not good at it. I've never even, you know, fired an arrow yet because, uh, that takes weeks, but, um, You know, it's all about your bodily form instead of shooting the target, right? And so, you know, the thing about these, um, this Japanese cultural, traditional cultural uh, predilection for perfect form is that everybody kind of learns how to create the perfect form and then from there you slowly start to make tweaks to it in experiments over time it's a very conservative way of cultural change Mm -hmm. but it's a very crafts oriented one and i think it's particularly good for making high quality versions of things that already exist so um you know japan did not invent the gene but Or do they make some of the best denim and the best jeans because you've got all these companies who've been working generations for generations to, you know, tweak the minor details to make them as as best as possible? So there is a craftsman mindset. Um, You know, the other, again, it's like I hate historical essentializing, but I really think this is a big deal, which is in before modern Japan, there was a Confucian system of, uh, Uh, hierarchy and society in which you had the emperor and the aristocrats on top, and then you had samurai, and then beneath them you had farmers, and then beneath them you had craftspeople, and then then you had uh, uh, merchants at the bottom. And so a lot of things also is brands and stores that make things and sell them would rather emphasize the making than the selling. And so there's kind of a uh, trying to push yourself to look more like a craftsperson than a merchant. And that means making yeah. the business not look like a business. So sometimes you're like, how is this even a business? It just looks like they're they're losing money on being so particular about how they make things. But I think there's just that general bias against commerce towards craftsmanship. That is a very, very old uh, thing that's kind of baked into Japanese society. And I do think that influences people. So, uh, the you know, the reason people get deep into things is because that's just the way culture points and then uh then you have all this assistance from magazines and uh stores and everything where there's this competition for who can have mm. the most obscure things and so that that also eggs you on so now the second part of the question is why are we obsessed with the Japanese stuff so I think first of all you know there is this sense in a globalized world that nothing's authentic anymore and and Japan because they're so focus on making the most authentic things in terms of how they are made uh so you know japan did not invent the jeans so they can't say we made you know jeans like we used to make them they have to say you know jeans like the united states used to make them but they can get as close as they can to the production Mm -hmm. techniques of 1930s Mm -hmm. levi's and so when we're in this crowded consumer marketplace and we want the best things with the most story and the most authenticity. And Japan just happens to be making a lot of them. I think also a lot of stuff in Japan is, is made with such craft and care that it's just superior. Um, And then there's a lot of, Just interesting things coming out of Japan that, uh, because people made interesting tweaks to the the formula, that uh, you know maybe we would not have considered if we're too close to it. But then there's like a fourth category that I think it uh, encompasses your guitar, which is that once Japan just became uh, cool, for lack of a better word, just imbued cachet on everything. So everything Japanese is just a little bit cooler than other things and so yeah so a, a made in japan Finder when i was growing up was seen as inferior you're supposed to get the made in usa copy but now yeah. it's maybe like oh yeah the made in japan one is 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 cool so you know made in japan became a high quality brand in the last 30 years uh you know and i think a lot about made in china which is the made in China at the moment is, is, is seen as an inferior brand. But when you talk to Japanese companies about making things in China, they're always like, Oh, Chinese production's incredible. Chinese manufacturing's great. There's Absolutely. no,
0: Oh, and anyone lag. who's done real production work of any kind like that, your, your, your mind gets changed immediately. Cause you're like anything technical can be done there. Anything, anything like yeah. the craziest stuff is done there and done way faster at a way lower cost. And like there, there's obviously there, there's different arguments inside of that, you know, ethically and stuff like that. But, but, but man production wise it can't be touched i mean it's it's its own thing now i don't think the craftsman side is maybe like like japan maybe it it doesn't feel as quite as important there um at least what i've seen personally but um but but wow is it like are they are they incredible
2: at at making things it's really wild (laughs) yeah yeah and so the main japan label is not like uh Based on a industry wide survey of how people believe that Japan quality is in manufacturing, it's very much just a vibe, and that vibe is based off of you know our generation growing up with Nintendo and oh. uh, Japanese cartoons, and then it extending all the way towards all this high craft. Goods and and Suntory whiskey and, and all these things, so all mm-hmm. of it's kind of bundled together to create this made in Japan image that's quite superior. And you know, China until they have real, their own consumer goods and consumer brands and are really influencing culture, probably won't be able to create that made in China vibe. Uh, but yeah, so I think some of its some of its vibes, and uh, it's just that that Japan is uh, is cool, and and you're not you're seeing mostly the. Also, when you're not in Japan, you're only seeing the cool parts of Japan. Oh, sure. Well, I think that's the thing.
0: There is this, like or there's this mystery that, that happens with Japan, especially if you've never been there or you've never, you know what I mean? You're not assimilated to the culture like you, like you, to know the like nuance of everything. Yeah. There is this just like mystery, because there's sometimes when customers will ask you questions about denim or whatever it is, and it gets to a point where you're like, I know you want more than than, <laughs> than is here right now, but that is sort of where it ends, you know, like in, in the story, it's like, I kind of told you there's not there's not another step here. That that That's, you know, they, they it with this kind of indigo, and that's sort of the, that's the information I have. Yeah, yeah, and um, and it, and it's funny because it's like it, it's almost like I, I think you you touched on something and I don't know why I haven't connected exactly, but the the Nintendo thing might have been where it started for me. Even like I think that was just like there was this like wow, it's incredible. There, it's more advanced. It's it's you know what I mean. <laughs> and then and then it kind of all the stuff that I was into after sort of like worshipped the stuff that came from there. Like like you're saying yeah. with the guitar, the guitar that I have that's made in Japan is a worse wood. If you're just comparing the woods that guitars are made of, this is a worse. Wood, it's a worse paint job. The electronics are outdated. That is the one I play more often. And if I had to sell, I'd sell the, the more expensive a Made in America one, I'd keep the Japan one because I love it. And there's just if you're asking me why, it's like, I don't know. It's it's that it's special. Well you know it's like, I mean? like you said, David, I had that catch there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you do you think that that's a little bit of it, David? Like that like people are in America are kind of making it a little bit more than it is at times because it because
2: because of the mystery. Oh, absolutely! Or even you know, if you think about the the history of denim production, Japan today is you know seen as okay. They they figured out how to make the best denim, but you know obviously people in Italy or Turkey or something would like have a lot of quibbles with that. And so sure. um, Japan's really good at creating this mystique and story, and uh, you know brand like Vizvim in particular, you know just masterful at creating a story out of the production process in which people would have done before in the sense that it would have just been a cool jacket or that's a t-shirt with a cool logo on it instead it's like oh we spent you know 18 months searching the world for the for the best cotton for a t-shirt and mm-hmm, then mm-hmm. we spent 18 months finding the right weaving process and spinning process you know all, all of that um the fact that we even know what the difference between spinning and weaving and dyeing and over dying and all these things, uh, it's pretty incredible. And, and I think Japan gets a lot of credit for creating that kind of value for the, the production, which is that we really start caring about how it was made, uh, and not just in a kind of sustainability way, but, you know, uh, is there being, is there sufficient craft? Is there, uh, a, a real effort to use the best materials in the best ways, um, I think that that's what Japan really, I don't, I don't know if they invented it, but they certainly perfected that. And, and that shapes high-end consumerism at the moment. And then I think that was able to, you know, basically give everything from Japan cachet. You know, one, one really simple example, everybody thinks Japan is, is about Zen. Right. So it's like, you know, minimal, minimal aesthetics and meditation and quiet. And, you know, Zen was always a super elitist aesthetic in Japan and and a super elitist form of Buddhism. And if you look at big, you know, the art out of um, pure land Buddhism, which is more of like a commoner type of Buddhism, it's not minimalist at all. And there's all these, you know, if you go to a festival here, you will see a lot of maximalist big color gaudy aesthetics and so you know japan is not a place in which zen is the dominant aesthetic at all but it's the one that people from overseas know and zen buddhism is the form of buddhism everybody knows because the people popularizing popularizing it overseas were all kind of elite uh people in interested in elite aesthetics so there's a little bit also of just again the um everyone has a little bit of a misperception of what Japan is like. And if you come here, you'll definitely find the thing you're looking for, but it's, it's not common. And, um, the funny thing to me also is people will come to Japan, uh, from the U S or Canada or whatever. And, uh, and say, Oh, we got to hit these like five stores or these five cafes. I will have heard of none of them. And so also just like, um, the degree to which really minor things in Japan get big, uh, in overseas because there's kind of this mythos like that, you know, one article about it makes it just seem like this very mythical romantic place. And then, you know, when in Japan knows what it is. I sometimes wonder if it's like, especially when it's the America,
0: Japan thing, I think a lot of the things that I'll, I'll just speak for myself. I, I sometimes like look at it for like you're saying with the Zen thing is just things that we, that aren't as common in our culture. And it's like, you want to, You're kind of like I feel like sometimes I have the desire to have like that, like more like I didn't grow up with any sort of like Zen thinking or any sort of like quiet lifestyle stuff. And I certainly didn't grow up also in an area that like really valued like craftsmanship or like fashion or culture in that way. And Japan always seemed to have that in a different way than than we did, or at least that I knew it. So it was like I was always almost like attracted to it just because it was so far the opposite, or it seemed like the things that I was connecting with were so far the opposite. But you're right, I'm probably just only focusing on those things because it, it feels, not only does it feel like the opposite, it feels kind of like almost like punk in, in, it, in its way, in its line of thinking, like, cause it's so different than what I'm used mm-hmm. to, which yeah. is so the opposite of a lot of like the, you know, the general, you know, lines of thinking that I know of in, in Japan and, and, in life and culture there.
2: But I mean, the other thing I would say is if you're interested in aesthetics in the broadest sense, like you were just interested in inhabiting some sort of cultural world that world will exist in tokyo because tokyo is so gigantic if you're into heavy metal and you want to go to a bar that only plays heavy metal there's probably like 10 to 12 of them in tokyo Mm -hmm. and maybe i'm (laughs) under counting and if you want to go to a place that's really into only playing rush records or prog rock there's most definitely that too so You know, whatever world you want to inhabit, uh, Japan has that. And, I I mean, you just can't say that about the United States or Los Angeles or, um, you know, they don't... If you're someone into niche things, Japan is just more interesting. And, uh, you know, Mad Men, I think some of the appeal of that show is people just wanting to inhabit this world in which everybody gets dressed up and looks nice. And um, you can kind of live that in japan i think it's getting slightly harder because people don't you know wear suits as much anymore but you can still go to places you dress up and go to places where you feel like you're living in this imaginary world where everybody gets dressed up and so uh especially if with clothing or you know if you're into wearing weird clothing it's amazing to do it in tokyo because no one will you know yeah. give you shit for it so it almost you know, feels I mean, like I used, a- I, It also feels like
0: escapism here whereas it feels like celebratory there. I don't know if that makes sense but it feels like that feels like you'd have to like know the right group of people who did that thing and somehow all get together and coordinate. Like that would be a difficult thing to like navigate. I mean even like you're talking about like I'm I'm super into like metal and prog rock ironically and like and like I can't like that doesn't you have to go to forums and stuff to find like guys to talk to about that. That's not like a place you could go organically because it doesn't feel as like celebrated. It feels like a lot of those niches are really celebrated in japan whereas it, it like i said it almost feels like escapism here
2: i don't know if they're celebrated widely but the group itself is strong enough to be self-replicating yeah i guess which is which is important but you know look i uh, when i was in san francisco i would sometimes wear a necktie and people would like literally shout from cars at me like, a nice necktie. You know? Like, it just angered. It made everyone so angry. And it's not yeah. like I'm wearing, you know, a necktie in a formal way. It's like I'm obviously wearing it in a somewhat casual, playful way. And yet it just offended people so much. And I, I think the thing about Tokyo is no one is going to scream at you. Like, um, you know nice cargo shorts or you know, whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah sure. wearing cool cargo shorts or lame cargo shorts, but no one is going to, to make it a big deal. And so, you know, it also just reveals, I think that, uh, you know, the United States is, is way more anti-fashion than uh, you think it is it's you think Everyone's just kind of ap- apathetic Towards fashion nobody cares but actually if you Get too dressed up uh, people will give you a hard Time oh yeah and Again, I, We're from is, the I Midwest
0: mean, man we we understand yeah. Like I, I remember I wore a Like a I got like a vintage sport jacket And wore it to school in like eighth grade I've never been more dragged through the mud In my entire <laughs> life than than That day and it, and, it, and then it But I mean you know for me it was just a situation Where I was like no no, no I'm right and you're wrong It's this like slight level of like I think I know better and I'm just going to really stick to my guns here <laughs> and and like I'm going to I I just like pushed through and was like no I bet I know better than these people but like this that was no I understand why that gets like it you're right it's I would argue that America's almost like anti they're not it, you can't stand out that's not like it's I think that they want to think you know like with all the individualism that like that we're I guess somewhat known for it's not it's not celebrated in the same way like that that sort of thing I actually wonder how much do you feel like social media really like blew this all up? Because I, I, I just know from when I was younger and basically having to be on like like ask Andy to talk to anybody about clothes when I was right, in Indiana, like and even then it wasn't really the clothes I was into, it's just at least I could talk to somebody about that kind of thing it, and, yeah. and learn more. Um when Especially, I really feel like with the height of Instagram, it is now a global conversation more so than it's ever been before. People have opinions that would have never been able to even formulate opinions at the time because you would, I mean, like I've said this before on the podcast, but like I used to have to go to like a Hallmark store to get like a Vogue magazine that was only women's was not catered to me at all just so I could learn something or piece together something that was happening in fashion because I had no access mm-hmm. to it, no way to follow it at all. And that's the only, that was the closest I could get and you had to really seek it out and want it. But I still had worse information than kids with bad opinions online now because they have access to all of it. Do you (laughs) think that that's like, I mean, obviously it's changed things a lot. Do you think it's changed things for the better in the discussion of fashion specifically, or do you think it's got, it's made it worse?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's tough. It's a, it's a double edged sword in the sense that, uh, If you want to know something, it's easier to know it than ever. I think there's less value to figuring things out. Uh, And that was half of the appeal was that, hey, I I don't know this. I don't know where to get this information. And you would get the information and you would feel so uh, triumphant that now I know this thing uh, that no one else does. Now it's kind of like even if you figure it out quickly, you know that there wasn't much cost to it. I talk about this in my new book, uh, Status and Culture, quite a bit at the end, which is, you know, the Internet uh, makes everything easily knowable. And because of that, there's a little less, uh, you know, cultural value to everything. And also the more that the Internet globalizes, the more that um, it, for for various reasons, it kind of pushes things to this nouveau riche aesthetic uh, where it more or less is about money and not knowledge. And so I do think Instagram and these uh, social media platforms have have brought together this huge cultural group. And if you're in a pocket of it that happens to be about the weird thing you're into, that's great. Um, but I think overall the culture is very much of the big luxury brands. The big luxury brands have never had more cultural influence than now, right? I mean, if you think about Louis Vuitton, even 20 years ago, it's just like it's a handbag for people in Japan, more or less. And now, you know, Louis Vuitton and Pharrell is like, you know, one of the biggest (laughs) cultural stories of the year. So... Uh, people from around the world are into high fashion the way they've never been before, but it's, it is really high fashion. And there's probably some trickle down to that, which means, okay, then people graduate from that and they get into some of the weirder Japanese brands. And maybe the, now they're wearing come to on and Sakai and then maybe some of them are wearing engineer garments and Vizvim or whatever it is, but um, it's probably good for the ecosystem overall. But I do feel like this, the, the more that everybody comes together to talk about fashion, the, mo- the more it, uh, probably the average conversation is about big luxury brands. Yeah,
0: well, and I think like I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head there. Is like the conversation seems to be about money, and like and and, and that's and 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 that's what bothers me a bit about it. Because I think overall, fashion has been so important to me in my life, and I and, and I take it so seriously. It's I've made an entire you know life out of it. It's just the it, it doesn't seem to be about culture and art anymore like that doesn't seem to be where the discussion is because you talk to younger people and it's always like no it's this so it's good and it's like no 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 you're not forming an opinion you've decided because it's expensive or because it's by this designer who's a known person that it it has like uh, inarguable cultural relevance and i don't think that that's I think it's a tough conversation to have because they're not wrong and I'm not wrong. You know what I mean? It's almost like not really, it's, it's a, it's become a very strange conversation. I, I think because like I can go to like my hometown go to any, I can go outside any like gas station where a couple of bros are hanging out and ask them if they know who Virgil Abloh is. And they do. And there's no chance mm-hmm. they know who Phoebe Philo is or anybody else that had like a lot of cultural relevance prior to him and like, or influenced yeah. a lot of those people, but they know him. And that's an interesting, that, that's, that's like a very interesting dynamic to me now that it is, it is a, it is in the, it is in the popular lexicon now, like fashion and fashion designers are like celebrities at this point. But I don't know that anyone has any real uh, it doesn't feel like anyone has any real opinions or like they're afraid to have real opinions. So it's more about like, did it cost a certain amount of money and that's what makes it relevant or not? And that's 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 a weird place for it to be, I think.
2: There was a TikTok video going around where someone in L.A. was going to their friends and saying, like, describe your outfit, and then they would go through each piece, but they would just say what the price was. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, it just, and, like, that entire the entire video, it's like, what planet am I on? Like, it just feels so bizarre. Um, but then you think about reselling culture also is is so big in this ecosystem. Yeah. And what reselling culture does is it, it you know... Uh, Puts the price of things out front, and so even if it's like okay, this t shirt, the Supreme t shirt is one hundred fifty dollars, but actually it's going for now four hundred on the auction sites because it's sold out, and then it's four hundred dollars. You know, it's just like everybody's thinking about the economic potential of the clothing itself in a way that wasn't going to happen before a reseller market because you know in. 1998 if you bought a come to Garcon suit for $800 like you weren't ever going to resell it for any money it was just like you had a come to Garcon suit and that was the point yeah. And so I, I do think it's like reselling has obviously made fashion more available and it's made it's taken off some of the stigma uh that it had for men because now it could be seen as like i'm just being like a smart entrepreneur by buying yeah yeah. like waiting in line to buy two things and putting one on ice or whatever like everybody has this alibi of i'm just being a a speculator i'm not i'm not actually into fashion don't worry um but i think (laughs) it has made (laughs) it has made things like uh really money focused and a kind of not not fun way.
1: Yeah, like you said, nobody's like, all right, this is a an engineered garments jacket. It's cool because it's a dead stock rip stop it, that he's been sitting on it for X amount of time, etc., cetera, et cetera. It's like this is four hundred and fifty bucks. Now uh, it's eight hundred, and now it's <laughs> yeah. eight hundred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Over that's out. why it's great. And it's like, yeah,
0: it's not. That's not really like. That's not the story. That's not any. You know what I mean? Like, you're not even playing the game of visvum or something at that point of being like, we created value because we sourced the goddamn hell out of this thing yeah, until yeah. it's until it's gone to that value. It's almost like this like. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's it it has it has relevance because it's this. I mean, and listen, I'm not, I, you know, I've had someone be like, you know, those what are those glasses? And you're like, well, they're Bottega. You don't know what you're talking. You know, like, you don't don't talk back to me about those. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so I, I found myself doing it if I'm being honest. At the same time, but like it's it is it is it is the I think one of the weirder things that's happened globally with fashion. Like I think it's so great because a, a guy in Missouri that has no access to fashion and you know what I mean suddenly has infinite access. Like I, I, w- I was starting to see kids in Chicago and I lived there come into my store and be like, rattle off these designer names. And these kids were like 15. I'm like, and I'm like, you guys are from like the suburbs here? And they're like, yeah, you know, we got into it from yeah. this YouTube guy. or this, And I'm like, that's yeah. so cool because you can learn the provenance of something. You can really like know it. And these kids are going to be smarter about fashion and styling than I am because they've had all this time to not, to know the source and develop their style over time. I think it is in some ways this great positive. And then this other ways, it's gotten kind of a little gross in that it feels more about money than it's ever felt before, um, which is also not great. So I don't know what the I don't know what the win is. I don't know what the long term of it looks like, but I do think maybe it'll settle down a bit. And now you have a much more educated customer who hopefully starts to. I just think there's also a little bit of lack of like real criticism of fashion. Everything feels like it's like that classic or trash kind of like argument where it's like this is either the best thing that's ever existed or the worst thing. It's there's no in between. There doesn't really seem to be any nuance or like growth of artists. It's more just like it's either bangs or it doesn't. And that, yeah. that I don't love that. Cause it's, it's sort of like, it's sort of glossing over that it should create a conversation, which is why I think really like, especially when we started this, we emphasized community so much because that's what it was to me growing up. And it does feel like as much as that's happening in a lot still, and in more interesting ways, I think it is segmenting itself more and more and more and not allowing like real conversation and criticism, which well, is a, little bit when, a bummer when the in crowd decides it's not cool. That's it. Yeah, there's a lot more hive mind than I think there yeah. ever was before because there was I, it was hard to find consensus unless you followed like certain <laughs> writers at places. Yeah. Well,
2: there was no hive, you know. I mean, yeah. There's, no, yeah, there's not enough bees to have a hive. Mind <laughs> yeah. Now you have yeah. enough bees, but uh, and look, I, I I do think overall it's good. And and the older I get and the more I think about these things, the more I think you're never trying to solve for the average person. And if you look at the average person, you'll be disappointed. You're trying to solve for the ecosystem, which is, you know, if you take the whole thing, is there enough Innovation in the margins that is spreading throughout the system. And that's in is there cultural refresh because the innovations are not being ignored and they're actually being taken up. And from that angle, like fashion is great at the moment. So you have more people involved yeah. and you have if you have a 15-year-old 15-year-old kid who knows what, what Balenciaga is just from those Harry Potter AI videos like that's better than it was a long time ago. And so, uh, yeah, you, what you hope is you create a lot of interest and then at the margins, you have interesting things. And then the people in the middle are stealing the ideas from the margins and giving us cultural refresh or cause otherwise culture stagnates. And so, uh, yeah, anyway, from that perspective, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic. Uh, but you're probably never going to get the average kid interested in artistry like just the way you're not going to get an average consumer interested in artistry Uh, but you can create the situation in which they're paying for and demanding artistry Mm -hmm. uh, or the brands think that they need to bring in artistry so Anyway, I, uh, for, that's pretty good. I mean, I think music in the nineties had the same thing, which is just the more people were brought into the market and it ended up that weird things happened on the margins. And I was listening to the ween album, pure guava mm. that came out on Electra. And it's like, they literally went to Ween and they're like, we, we want to put out your next record. They're like, here's the cassette tape, go for it. And you know, the, like they made no compromises on that record to yeah. be like, this is a major label release. And, uh, you know that that is interesting when the mainstream just starts going to the margins and trying to pick up whatever there is if the stuff on the margins is actually pretty weird but that only happens when the market itself is growing yeah and expanding and so i think having more people into fashion probably has good downstream effects for the good people
0: Yeah, I think that we were in the, like, a little bit of the, especially in the business that we're in, a little bit in the thick of this, like, big transformation. I think the overall is going to be this huge positive, and the people that, like, I, I don't sit around and think, oh, it's changing, that's a negative. I don't think so. I mean, I watched it, it felt stagnant for a long time, especially, like, fashion houses. It just felt so repetitive and boring and protected, and this mix-up that happened through, I think kind of through Louis Vuitton to a certain extent and, you know, the internet, yeah. it really felt like, oh, there's a giant shift happening. And I think that that is a net positive, even though there's gonna there's some growing pains. But I also think that, like, I just don't understand why people get involved in fashion that don't want it to change. Like, by nature, that's the whole thing. It should change. So I think, overall, I have my gripes, but I think at the end of the day, like, I just have to accept that number one. I'm on, I'm I'm getting to be on the older side of fashion as quickly as that happens, and especially as young as young as it's getting now because of the internet. That it's it's just it's okay. I like I, I think it's I think it's cool to see it evolve, even if it has like I said have some has some growing pains. Um, it, 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 we're we're sort of at the the end here, David. But the I, I'd had I had two I had two questions I want to ask you that are a little off topic. Mm-hmm. One. And you already touched on it with the the archery thing. What are some of the other things that you're that you're into that aren't fashion that you've gone deep on? Because I have to imagine they're interesting.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, fashion was a latter day interest for me because mm-hmm. I was always very into music and um, yeah, music and art history. I think are two things that I was I was really into uh, as a teenager, and then. Uh, I made music, you know, I was in a, I was in a band in high school just kind of doing what we called pop, and, you know, got a sampler and a drum machine in college and started making, you know, bad um, acoustic guitar over samples and, and 808 beat kind of stuff. I was going to ask you, and, uh, what drum uh, machines four-track. are we
0: talking about here?
2: Well, I I mean, I had this terrible one called Dr. Groove, which was exactly, like the yep. first drum machine that had like drum and bass patterns in it yeah. but it was terrible relatively uh, expensive
0: now though if you want one.
2: Oh, you yeah, know the doctor sample which i also have there was just like a phrase sample that thing is like out of control expensive yeah. and I'm, i actually pulled it out and i'm using it a bunch I'll, I'll i'll they have like all these lo-fi modes and i'll just put it on top of my piano and record the piano uh, oh, cool. on that and use it and so you get this really kind of crunchy sound but uh so yeah i mean music and The other part of this for me, because I'm just fascinated with culture uh, and I'm very frustrated with culture, which is that when you learn about the economy – if you're like, I'm interested in business or the economy, they're like, great. Here's supply and demand, and here's the theory of the firm, and here's all these like micro principles and and ways to understand and measure it. And I think with culture, you're like, what's culture? Like nobody knows. It's just this thing. Like don't don't worry too much about defining it, and no one's ever defined it. And so you know, the thing that propelled me for a long time was just. Trying to figure out what is actually going on in culture, and that, like, how do you quantify it, and how do you measure it, and how do you explain the phenomenon that people are really into one thing and then later not into it, uh, and status and culture—that book is trying to work that out, and I think it does make it much more concrete. If you're interested in trying to figure out what culture is doing and why it changes, uh, you know, uh, I, I try to kind of solve that. But you know, that that um, is a never-ending intellectual quest for me and trying to read about that. And so now I'm reading a ton about um the the links between human evolution and cultural development or something. There's this great scholar named Michael Tomasello who kind of puts all that together. Um I'm trying to read about how aesthetics work in the brain and and all of those kind of things. So th- that 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 is never ending. It's never, I get to like, well, I solve that. Uh, there's always mm-hmm. kind of one more book to read that leads mm-hmm. to one more book. And then recently I started getting back into making music. Um, my, when I had, I think music was really, really difficult to work on with very small children. And, um, as the kids got older, just suddenly started getting more free time. And then during pandemic was like, I should actually get some of this gear I always wanted yeah, and, yeah, bro. and figure, figure things out. And so um there's also this renaissance at the moment of small companies, a lot of them in Europe making very strange drum machines and synthesizers. And so um Soma in, I think Poland They did this, um, little, little noise box that uses the chip from a washing machine to generate all these kind of, uh, weird drone noises. And then, you know, twisted electrons is in France and Mm -hmm. herbs and stones is in Italy and, uh, you know, making, uh, PC card sound chip FM drum machines. I don't know. I mean, there's just really cool stuff going on with, with new sounds, uh, that you that you never heard before. So I, I've been really into to doing music stuff um as well uh recently and and then I just I love walking Tokyo and trying to, to find all of the things in Tokyo um that date from the mid-twentieth century. Cause one of the things about Japan is or at least in Tokyo is things, the development is so quick and rapid and old things get destroyed uh, very quickly and nobody really cares. And so you have to search them out, but there are old bars and restaurants and and things dating from the fifties and so uh, uh, fifties or sixties or whatever. And so I've been on this quest to also kind of go around Japan and and, uh, find these places and catalog them and learn more about it. So that kind of urban exploration is another thing that I'm pretty into interesting okay last question
0: for you what is one thing that you like like you just can't you can't get in Japan but you can get in the U.S. and then vice versa like what are like you know I mean like if you were just like eh, coke isn't the same obviously it's the same but (laughs) but I mean like is there is there there things that you like when you come back to the U.S. it's like as soon as I hit that I got to grab one you know what I mean
2: Oh, I, I'm so prepared for this question. Yeah. So there, are all these, <laughs> there are all these import shops in Japan, and they all have like slightly different uh, things they import from overseas, and I, I've cataloged all of them in my head so that I know that you go to Gyoma Super to get the sauerkraut, and you go to Seijo Ishii to get... Uh, the specific kind of uh, Swiss cheese that I want, you know, so like I know yeah, yeah. kind of almost everything. The the things you cannot get, um, stone milled grits, like really good grits. Uh, Southern boy. I've, yeah, I've got to I've got to get in the U.S. So You can get grits here, uh-huh. but they're just they taste more like polenta. Like they don't they're not right. They need to be a little bit um, more roughly milled sure. to taste good. So I, I bring back a lot of grits and a lot of cornbread mix. Um, my mom brought me a thing of lard to make biscuits with that I have in my freezer. Mm, nice. I, I, maybe I could get lard here, but, uh, that, that would be more difficult. Uh, toothpaste, like a really good crest with baking soda and scope mouthwash or whatever, like you can't quite get that. You can get toothpaste, like American style, like, like mint blast your mouth.
0: This is a good uh, to know because I love to mint blast.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, so you need, you gotta get that from overseas. And there's a lot of books that I can't get, uh, or I guess I can get them shipped from, from, the Amazon, but like sure they're quite quite expensive. So I'll just yeah. usually pick them up there. But it's that that list is getting shorter and shorter. And I started also one of the things that I like to make is red beans and rice or uh my mom's green beans, which are mm. have a ham hock in them. And you can't yeah. get a ham hock. But I started yeah. calling the butcher and being like can you get me a ham hock? Like, I looked up the word for ham hock and they like uh-huh, yeah. never <laughs> heard this word and they're like, what are you talking about? And then I was like, oh, do you know like the German ice bine? Like it's that thing. Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah. have that. Like, come, okay. come pick it up. And like uh, there's this butcher store like that's near my house that I walk to and it doesn't even have like a retail section. You just like open the door and they're like cutting giant things of meat. And you're like, hi, I called about the uh ham hock, and they're like, Yeah, yeah hold on a second. And they like just give me this bloody bag for um eight dollars. So <laughs> I've gotten pretty good also like. Sourcing my yeah. own ingredients Needs. for my cooking, and now it's gotten to a point where, yeah, I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty self-sufficient, and it's it definitely enough to be like once, once a year. Uh, I I you know I might go home for Christmas, and so it's like I I know what to load up on, and my mom will buy me like little Debbies and
1: yeah, and, uh, yeah.
2: <laughs> like uh you know biscuit mix or whatever. But you yeah. know like I figured out how to make biscuits on my own, so uh, so yeah, and then oh, what can you not get in, in the U.S. from Japan? I mean, the the thing that's also interesting is there's all these places popping up to do Japanese food and even like Japanese style coffee or um. Yeah egg sandwiches or whatever. And it's all kind of off. Yeah. Uh, my parents love to take me to like this Japanese restaurant in Vancouver is amazing. Let's go. And it's like the rice just doesn't taste right. And, and I it, I don't mean to be a snob about it, but there really is still like a huge difference and the quality of food in Japan is incredible in the sense that people always are like, oh, I need to go to this specific restaurant. There's a, you know, 200 person line outside. It's just like, just go next door and I'm sure it will be just as good as like, good. yeah, yeah, <laughs> like there's like everything's good. You you will have a bad restaurant experience, like one out of every 50 restaurants or something. But it's so overall uh, the food is so good. I think when you go back and you try to eat approximations of it, it's it's not All great. Right. And it's then it used adjusted. to be like, I would have to go home to have Southern barbecue because there was no Southern barbecue. And now there's like these places that, you know, like the, just the way they obsess, uh, people obsess about whiskey or coffee, or whatever they've obsessed around. This. Yes. Southern barbecue. So you mm-hmm. get this like perfect pulled pork sandwich that has the coleslaw on the sandwich. And there you're like, yep, this is, this is it. North Carolina for you. <laughs> yeah. uh,
1: is there something like a meal in particular that, that like has been doing it for you? You know, like, is there like a, a restaurant or something that you've been frequenting lately in Japan in particular?
2: Uh. I mean, there's this place Freeman's that is run by an American that does like an incredible pastrami. And, and mm-hmm. you know, so now, now there's also a little bit of like uh, people like the experts from overseas coming to Japan and like opening uh. their own, own places. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the one thing I'll say in Japan's craft beer 10 years ago was pretty terrible or was all imported. And now Japanese craft beer is incredible. There's just like a lot going on. And that's been interesting too. I don't know, I, I mean, I've been cooking at home a lot of great stuff and, you know, that was one benefit of the pandemic is just like getting more opportunity to, to learn how to make all these things that my, I grew up on. And so, uh, you know, I can go have a pulled pork, but I also now can make a pulled pork in my oven or do barbecue ribs in my oven. They're, they're great yeah right on good shit
1: man
0: hey man really wanted to say thank you thank you for taking the time i know it's early there and and we really appreciate it man i know a lot of people wanted us to reach out to you and you know love the love the books and everything so really appreciate you taking the time today
2: and thank you for the support of of the book and all the uh you know all the customers who have read it and are into it you know again it's it I, I thought it was a fascinating story, you know, when I was writing it by myself and I, and when it came out, uh, my former boss at Tokyo was like, Oh, the three people interested in this topic are going to love it. <laughs> and so I, I really did not have a lot of high expectation that like it would still be selling well after all this time or that people would be talking about it. Um, and you know that the the stories, the people in that just lived incredible lives and did incredible things, and it, it makes me really happy that they're becoming famous around the world, uh, and their their legends are, are are getting bigger and bigger. And in uh, September, we're doing a new revised version uh, in English uh, oh, with a great. new cover. And I, I wrote an afterword to it, uh, and afterwards pretty much like, you know, since this book came out, like the book distorted the story because, you know, people talk about, you know, amateur is now like a adjective. It's not just a reference to the book. Yeah, and, absolutely. But yeah. also, like, um, these brands have become so integrated within the global system. It's almost like they're not, you know, Japanese fashion isn't a sub... Sub-genre anymore, it really is just kind of part of it So, uh, it's it's been great And, you know, again, thanks to anyone who's bought the book And, and told their friends about it It spread 100% word of mouth it, You know, it, it was the kind of book that It was uh, <laughs> it had Very, very small uh uh, expectations from both me and the publisher and uh it's it's probably you know it sells more these days than it did when it came out so uh, uh thank you to to everybody for that yeah
0: of course yeah if anyone that's listening has not checked it out you should absolutely check it uh, remind me the name i i i had it do you remember the name of the new book too david
2: New book is uh, status and culture, right. and uh, it has a subtitle that I don't even remember because it's so long. But you know, basically, <laughs> stati- status Apple. and culture is 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 more of a general theory. Uh, is I try to make it as easy to read as possible, but it still you know requires some effort. But like, where does culture come from? Why does it change? And it looks at um, status seeking as kind of the secret ingredient for that. But what I try to look at is, you know, taste and subcultures and art and uh class, fashion cycles, history, why something a classic, uh retro, all of these things are kind of you easily understandable phenomena when you understand the the principles of human motivation. And so it tries to to look at culture as an ecosystem and explain all the parts of it. Cause I, I really felt like there wasn't a book that did that and it, it needed to happen. And so, um, it's very different than Amatora. Amatora is like a, just a straightforward story. Uh, but if you're interested in just the broader principles of how culture works and why it changes, I, I, I recommend checking it out. Awesome.
0: That's great. All right. Man, again, just really big, big thank you for making this work, man. And, uh, it was a pleasure having you on.
2: Thank you so much. All right, man. You Take it easy. Have a good one.